Hi everyone, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, December 28th. Amanda Borchel Dan here with our Ops and Blogs editor Miriam Herschlag and military reporter Emmanuel Fabian. Hello to you both. Hi Amanda. Hi Amanda. So great to see you. We have a lot to cover, especially since Miriam is here to bring us her favorite voices of 2022 from her team of thousands of bloggers. Manny will start us off, though, with an arrest made yesterday for November's Jerusalem bombing, as well as speak to us about Israel's extremely porous border with Jordan. But first, a short break. And we're back. Listeners, before we dive into today's episode, I'd like to draw your attention to our newest podcast miniseries, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin. In it, you'll hear from eight different legal experts on whether or not looming legislation may shift the face of Israel for better or worse. So please check out Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin wherever you find your podcasts. Now, Manny, you reported yesterday on an arrest in connection to the double bombing in Jerusalem that took place on the morning of November 23rd that killed two and wounded over 20. Who is currently in custody for the attack? So uh, the Shimbet Security Agency and police uh, announced yesterday formally that uh, a man by the name of Eslam Farouk, he is an Israeli resident from uh, Kafar Aqab in uh, East Jerusalem, but he spent most of his time actually living in the Ramallah area. He was arrested kind of the days after the attack, um, so he has been in custody since. Several other people were also arrested, but they were all released because um, police believe that uh, Farouk committed this attack entirely by himself and he had no help from anyone else. So shortly after the attack, and a couple a day or two later, security forces found uh, a, a motorcycle, uh, a motorized scooter, a helmet, some pipe bombs, some spare clothes, and uh, near Malia Dumim in the West Bank. And they believed that this belonged to the to the terrorists who planted the two bombs in Jerusalem, and that eventually led them to the suspect himself. Uh, they also found near Ramallah this area where he was testing his own bombs. So according to uh, uh, police in the Shimbet, Fruch uh, learned how to build bombs from the internet. Uh, he's a mechanical engineer by trade, so he looked up guides and managed to build his own bombs. So they found this kind of testing ground. And they also seized there another uh, another bomb that he had planned to use during the attack and didn't in the end, uh, as well as a makeshift uh, gun that he had. Now, he has not been formally charged, and you say he's been in custody for about a month, actually. So why are we hearing about him now? So uh, yesterday there was a custody hearing, so he was brought to a court to extend his uh, remand until, you know, until he's charged. So that, that's that been approved by the court. Now, the Shimbedan police are saying that he committed this attack uh, due to his affiliation with Islamic State, so um, his sort of ties to the uh, jihadist group. It, it's unclear exactly if if he had real ties or he was inspired by them. Uh, Islamic State has not really claimed responsibility for the attack. Uh, and we'll have to wait and see when he is actually charged uh, for the attack, whether or not that is something that is included in the uh, in the charge sheet. 
Okay. Now, on Monday, the Shinbet Security Agency announced it had foiled an attempt by terror groups in the Gaza Strip to carry out a bombing attack in Israel. Four Palestinians were arrested in the West Bank on December 14th. So who was behind this planned attack? So this is an interesting one. Two more minor uh, terror groups in the Gaza Strip uh, were actually behind this attack. So the uh, uh, Popular Resistance Committees, which is, I believe, the third or fourth largest group in in Gaza after Hamas and Islamic Jihad and some other groups. And then the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which is mostly a a West Bank-based terror group, but does also have some members in the Gaza Strip. So according to the Shin Bet, um, several uh, of its members, namely a man by the name of Ahmed uh, Fatri Omar Hajjaj, who is an explosive expert, uh, he got in contact with other members in the Gaza Strip who then recruited these West Bank Palestinians. And then he instructed them on how to build explosives. They ended up building a bomb and they had it primed and it was ready to be used before they were arrested. Uh, these four Palestinians uh, from the um, Janine area, from the uh, Tulkarim area, and they were um, planning on planting it in, a, in an Israeli city. So uh, this was foiled last month, and uh, these four have now been uh, charged. Now, Manny, finally, you wrote a deep dive into our porous border with Jordan, stating that Israeli authorities say they are beginning to gain the upper hand in a relentless battle to stymie the mass smuggling of arms into Israel and the West Bank. So how is the tide turning here? So the past year has seen quite a shift by Israeli security officials. Police, the army, the Shin Bet have all kind of joined together and decided to really work a bit harder on preventing this uh, these, this mass smuggling of weapons into Israel from Jordan. Now, the past years uh, have seen quite a, a, a rise in um, murders in Israel's Arab community. M- many of them have been um, using illegal firearms. And in the West Bank in recent months, Palestinians have been opening fire at Israeli troops. Um, so the, the big question is, where are all these guns coming from? Where did they all come from? So um, Israeli officials, the police realized that the vast majority are coming from Jordan. So hundreds, if not more, tens of thousands in recent years have been smuggled over. Um, So the past year has seen a massive shift. So uh, according to police officials that spoke to me, um, they they said the changes from around 10 or 15% that they were foiling of incidents of smuggling over the border to about 70 or 80% in the past year. So a massive, massive increase. So this year, the army and police have seized around 500 guns brought in from um, the border. Um, many of them are handguns, also some rifles, um, and several suspects have been arrested. But the attempts do continue, though the number of attempts have gone down, according to the army. And they say that um, because of their presence on the border, they're more... Uh, the more attention they're giving to the border, then it's actually lowering the amount of times that the smuggling groups are attempting to bring guns over the border. Now, the border is quite long, obviously. And are there certain places in it, for instance, the Jordan Valley, that are more porous than others? So uh, it's interesting. The southern section of the border between the Dead Sea to Elat is mostly open and uh, very little significant fencing. Some areas are just barbed wire. But there aren't that many recording uh, smuggling attempts there because there is, um, it's just a very vast, barren open area. 
the area where there's most where most smugglings are recorded are actually in the Jordan Valley, where there's close proximity to both Palestinian towns in the West Bank and Jordanian towns in uh, in Jordan in the Jordan Valley. So it makes it a lot easier for um, to smuggle when when there's people there, and and it, it just becomes easier. Another thing is the topography of the Jordan Valley. There's these small hills, or the quite tall hills actually, uh, in the valley itself, which uh, enable the the smugglers to kind of sneak in between and hide from uh, the Israeli um, surveillance cameras and from troops patrolling. It's very difficult to see. So uh, I stood at one of these um, military posts at a very high point, and I couldn't even see what was going on in these small channels. So, so the officers who spoke to me noted that this was a very, uh, very easy way to get through. And then uh, we should talk about the fence itself. The the fence that does exist there is quite old. It's from the 1970s. It hasn't been uh, upgraded since. And it makes it very difficult to, to detect when people do, um, you know, break through or breach the fence or, or dig under it. Uh, sometimes the sensors don't work because it's so old, so they have to go and fix it. Um, and this is really unlike the other borders with Egypt or with Lebanon or with Syria, where they've been upgraded uh, to this more, much more taller and um, more advanced and sophisticated fence that can really detect every small movement. Really fascinating. And of course, there will be a link in our program notes. We're going to a short break now. And we're back. Miriam, so happy to have you back on the podcast. First of all, remind our listeners just how many bloggers we have posting on the Times of Israel. Hi, Amanda. It's uh, delightful to be back. Yeah, it depends on how you count it. I mean, we've had over, you know, many, many thousands of people on the platform. And this year, uh, they contributed nearly 10,000 pieces of writing. So, uh, yeah, we're we're rounding up a wonderful year with a lot of uh, wonderful content. And, you know, just the diversity that we always are looking for is really there. And we love the bloggers for giving of themselves to this platform. Yay. Let's hear for the bloggers. <laughs> now, you compiled Yay. a list of your top dozen posts from the past year. And I can't even fathom how you went about assembling your list. How did you? How? How? So it was there was a very scientific process and it was driven by algorithms. And then we just threw the whole thing up in the air. And the first ones that landed are the ones we picked. <laughs> no. So uh, what, what I really decided to do this year was, um, you know, what do we mean by a top post um, was to look at posts that actually moved me. So it's a really personal um, list of recommendations. And they are posts that um, this this year, we veered away, I veered away from politics. We're in the middle of, I can't even think of a time uh, when we were in such a deep morass. We're just on the cusp as we record this of signing in this absolutely, you know, remarkably different new kind of government. Um, and I thought this could be a moment, especially at the end of the year, a kind of exhausting year, where the content we that I want to uh, celebrate um, gives us a chance to really dive into a story uh, or an experience and something that moves um, moved me and might move other readers. So I stuck with with uh, 
with beautiful writing and uh, s- some humor, some dark stuff. Um, and um, I-, I think that as a as a whole, the collection shows, of course, I left off wonderful stuff too. And I apologize uh, for that, but that's the uh, the nature of these kind of lists. I can get behind what you're saying about things that moved you. And there were several that personally moved me from your list, but I'll only bring up two. Now, the first one was Marc Chinard, and he is an educator, an Orthodox Jew, who had a wife, has children, and had a prominent position as a Jewish educator, but decided to come out of the closet as a 45-year-old man. I spoke with him uh, separately on our weekly podcast, Times Will Tell, after reading his very moving blogs, and it was one of our most listened episodes last year. So why do you think that his story is so compelling to our Times of Israel readership and listenership? Well, first of all, it's beautifully written, and obviously it's a personal drama that uh, many of us can't even imagine uh, having to make the choices that uh, that Mark Shinar made. And he comes out of very much the center of American modern orthodoxy with a you know, Yeshiva University pedigree. He was a beloved educator at the SAR Academy and has a beautiful family. So he had, you know, every reason to continue that beautiful life except for this one big thing. And what he talks about in that post and subsequent posts, because he's continued to be, to work as an educational consultant, is the need to live authentically. So we ask the question, you know, what happens when your authenticity, you know, has an internal contradiction with uh, your lifestyle or the way you want to live your life or the way you always envisioned your life? And he treats it with great, um, um, I thought I think thought and eloquence. You know, he in in one case he says living a version of my life that I assumed most people would have wanted to see. I embraced a series of complex choices, ignoring the voices that heavily and constantly pressed down on me. These gremlins, he calls them, have have been fueled by the possibility that someone might discover I'm a fraud. And also, you know, so just living in authenticity, but also living with with t- terror, really, um, when you're trying to hide a secret. So I think he um, it was, you know, for his own health, but also he's offering an educational message. And wherever you stand on this, it's a he's a it's a very like, um, I think, moving and an honest treatment of of his experience. So just the writing is lovely. Agreed. Now, the second piece I chose just had me sobbing because it's so aptly captured two beautiful souls with whom I studied in uh, 2001 at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. It was written by our Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Daniel Landes, who just captured their essence and the experience of losing these two really remarkable beings. Why did you choose this piece? Yes, just to add, it was the 20th anniversary of this horrific bombing. Um, It's one of those events that personally, I remember where I was standing when I saw the news. Um, And I didn't actually have the experience you had of actually knowing the people. Nine people were killed in a bombing in 2002 at Hebrew University. Two of them were students of Rabbi Landis, who at the time was the head of the Pardes Institute, as you mentioned. And so it was his tribute to them, but and not just but because they, they, you know, he, he really evokes them 
Um, what I also found was, you know, many, many Israelis are living with trauma and, you know, are reliving experiences that happened, you know, many years ago. And the way he wrote about these days that he, that in which he had to go to America actually to perform a wedding of other Pardes students who also knew these people and go to the homes of of the families, and there's um, there's something about the f- the the remarkable uh, almost freshness, as if this happened not 20 years ago, but a year ago or yesterday, that was so moving to me and captured this crazy experience that everyone has who's been through some horrific tragedy while the rest of life goes on. And you're also in the rest of life. You're you're also required to to appear at a wedding and to tell people no, they mustn't delay their wedding. They must uh, live their lives. So very eloquent. He uh, he wrote a little note to me saying he wishes he hadn't had to write that. Of course, we all do. But being able to um, put that down on paper, uh, you know, trauma is very hard for people. It's very hard to to be articulate about it. And those who can, I think, do a tremendous service for for the rest of us in trying to plumb the depths of these feelings. Agreed. Miriam, take us out on an upbeat. Take us out with one of your choices <laughs> that were actually <laughs> optimistic. Oh, oh, there are so many. Uh, but I think I'm going to talk about the one that made me laugh out loud, and that is called Confessions of a Reluctant Dish Heiress uh, by a writer who uh, exclusively writes in Hebrew. This is a translation, Ruth Efroni. If you speak Hebrew, look for her on Facebook. She's really, really sharp, really funny, dark humor, Mike, that which happens to be my cup of tea. And she's talking about her mother, who hunts constantly bringing the family together uh, now that she's in her 80s, to ensure that her three children choose the things they want to inherit when she dies. So um, it's just this funny, you know, they're they're like, she's got a lot of sets of dishes and they're all kind of bickering over the dishes in this hilarious way, which is really about how much they love each other. Um, I, I just enjoyed that piece so much as a beautiful illustration by our wonderful illustrator, Avi Katz, of, of the adult children holding these, these ridiculous cups. I would just really recommend reading Confessions of a Reluctant Dish Heiress um, by Ruth Afroni. I, I think you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Thanks, Miriam. I'm going to look for it right now. And of course, there will be a link in our program notes. Thank you, Manny. Thank you, Miriam, for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.